Action Network Podcast. 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 If you are even remotely a savage, you'll run these people over in a second. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome in to the Action Network podcast presented by BetMGM. I'm your host this week, Brendan Glasheen, joined by Sean Zarillo and Billy Ward. That means our UFC betting previews are back. This is our third episode since the return. It's our first episode post-Super Bowl, so we're off and running here. We're, we're, this train is back on the tracks, and we are uh, smooth sailing here now for going forward in the spring into the summer. Subscribe, rate, and review because every Friday, Sean and Billy will give out some underdogs, some props, some best bets in UFC. Uh, this week, UFC 298 at the Honda Center, a.k.a. The Pond in Anaheim, California. We'll dive into the main event, uh, also the guys' fight of the night, and also uh, some of their picks could also be prelim fights. So we'll, uh, we'll find out what direction they'd like to go. We'll start with the main event, guys. Six o'clock tomorrow night in Anaheim. Uh, Volkanovski. Taken on uh, Toporia. That is the main event. Featherweight title bout. Sean Zarillo looking at uh, BetMGM, our presenting sponsor. Uh, Toporia is the slight underdog at plus 105. Volkanovski minus 125. Pick and fight. So do, do you have a side you lean to? And if not, how would you like to bet the fight? Yeah, I like Toporia here as the underdog. And specifically saying as an underdog, because he did open around plus 160. But earlier in this week, this line essentially moved to a pick and price. More money has come back in on Volkanovski, pushing him back up to actual favoritism status and getting Taporia back at plus money. If you're able to get plus money on the Taporia side pre-fight, that is where I put my money. I also like him to win inside the distance at around plus 200, projected that prop closer to plus 160. In terms of how I think the fight plays out, most important stat here is the eight-year age differential between the pair. We regularly talk about this eight-year age gap on the podcast. Sometimes it's bigger, sometimes it's smaller, sometimes 10-plus years, sometimes seven years, but... In that eight-plus-year age range, MMA fighters, more than a 1,000 fights worth of sample, when they're eight years younger than their opponent, they win about 13% more than the betting market tells you, covering an average line of about minus 217, that's roughly 68%, compared to average betting odds of minus 123, 55% implied. So the younger fighters tend to be underrated, tend to have fewer fans. The older fighters generally have more fans, more popular, like Volkanovski. But also in these smaller weight divisions, I think people underrate the fractional decreases in speed, fractional decreases in athleticism. Volkanovski coming in off of a knockout loss just six months or so ago. Actually, I think even less than that uh, was back in October. So not, you know, maybe as much time to get back into camp, get his skills fully ramped back up. But also he's 35 years old and just declining where Tuporia is in his prime, very reminiscent of when Conor McGregor rose to fame loud talking very brash european already has featherweight champ in his instagram bio was taking pictures with the featherweight title belt the other day as confident as they come undefeated and with that undefeated nature you do get fighters who are a bit more confident and a bit you know a bit tougher to beat inside the octagon just because they don't have the knowledge of what it feels like to lose so uh Taporia, i think is going to be a physical problem for volkanovsky particularly the early going he's going to be able to apply pressure back volkanovsky up be the superior boxer and look to box Volkanovski's head off. He has more power and he has more durability if he's able to force the boxing exchanges. If this fight extends, if it gets into the third round, fourth round, Volkanovski's able to create a little space, get distance, 
kickbox with Toporia. I think he can certainly work his way back into the fight. Has great cardio, world-class cardio, and he makes phenomenal in-fight adjustments. He's great at seeing what his opponents are doing early and then adjusting to that and working off of it. So I like Toporia to win this fight early. I like him to win the early minutes. I like him to potentially get a finish within the first couple of rounds. Toporia inside the distance is at a plus 200. His money line, because he should bank early rounds towards winning decision. And then also his round one prop, I think, is interesting, too, at a big, juicy number. Uh, and if you're looking to bet the favorite here in Volkanovski, I think you'll find a better live price either after the first or the second round or potentially after both rounds. I'd look for him to make a comeback instead of betting him pre-fight. All right, good stuff. And based on Billy Ward's write-up, you can find ActionNetwork.com, Action Network app, the UFC luck ratings. You noted the line move, Billy. Uh, you think it's fairly valued now at this stage. You could have got a better price on uh, on Volkanovski earlier on. Um, but where are you at now? Same direction as Zarillo? Yeah, I mean, this line's moved kind of all over the place. I think for, there was like a matter of hours in there. We could have actually got Volkanovski at even money or slight plus money. Yeah. Could be wrong on that, but it's yeah. you know it's been all over the place. I think we're about right, but... You know, to add on to the age trends that Zerillo mentioned, the other one I wanted to bring up is no fighter 35 and older has ever won a title fight at 155 or below. This is 145. Obviously, Volk's had a ton of fun with that. He did his old man Volk Volk commercial for some company in Australia, showed up as old man Volk at the press conference, pretended to fall asleep when Topiria was talking. So he's aware of these things and he's acknowledging it. If there's anyone who can break those trends, it's probably Alexander Volkanovsky, just, you know, supreme athlete in general, probably the best featherweight of all time, one of the best fighters of all time, never lost in the division. But, you know, I look at the skill set of both these guys, and I'm trying to make a comparison for who Topuria reminds me of, and the best uh, comparison I have for him is a young Alexander Volkanovsky. You know, he's really well-rounded, can do it all. In his debut, Topuria got five takedowns, or just throwing sub-attempts. He fought Josh Emmett, took him down a bunch of times. He fights grapplers, he stands and bangs and trades with them. Very reminiscent of Volkanovski's skill set, but eight years younger, probably at this stage a better athlete. You know, I don't know if prime for prime I would say that necessarily, but... And then we look at his last fight, it was his first five-round fight. The only round that anyone gave to his opponent, Josh Emmett, was the first. Two judges gave Emmett the first. Topiria looked fine going for 25 minutes. I don't see cardio being a problem. I'm not going to say it's as strong as it is for Volkanovski just because he hasn't really proven it. And it's easy to go five rounds when you're dominating a guy. It's a lot harder when you're in a back-and-forth war. But with that said, it's not like a major concern on the Topuria side. So I'm going to be actively rooting against my own bet here. I'm wearing my Volcomania shirt, but I've got Topuria at slight plus money. And I do like Sean's angle with the, the live stuff. I mentioned last week, like, every bet I took, I wanted a live hedge if it became available and, and that really worked out last week, and I think it's going to be a similar week And that there's a lot of spots we can do that, including the main event. Okay. Extensive breakdown on the main event, uh, which also, by the way, main card's on pay-per-view this week uh, in Anaheim. Make sure we note that because it's been uh, ESPN Plus the last couple weeks. Uh, let's go to the fight of the night for Zarillo and Billy Ward. Marab Davalej V. Wow. Dela- <laughs> this is a tough one. Devalish Vili. Apologies. Henry Cejudo uh, is the matchup here. Wow. Uh, I could not do that one more time, to be quite honest with you guys. Um, That's our fight of the night, Zarello. What do you think? Same same, uh, kind of analysis here. When you look at the fight, how do you see it playing out? And based on that, how do you want to bet it? 
Yeah, another older fighter here in Henry Cejudo, old for his division, average age for uh, 135 pounds is 31 years old. Cejudo is 37, has said that he will retire if he loses this fight. And I've seen a lot of takes about how Marab is a wrestler and Henry is an Olympic wrestler. And this is the best takedown defense that Marab has ever seen. I think that's crap. Um, I've also seen takes that Henry is the better striker. Disagree. Marab has Henry covered everywhere here. And I think this is a very bad matchup for Henry. Um, I actually think Marab's going to finish him. And Marab inside the distance at about plus 450, knockout plus 650, I think are interesting. Not something I'm necessarily going to bet straight. Might be on my round robin tickets. I'll have it somewhere. But Henry's very durable. I just get this feeling that Marab is going to feign a takedown and he's going to land something, crumble Henry, get on top, and the ref's going to have to step in. But Marab's performance in his last fight against Piotr Jan was, and I'm not saying this to be superlative, I'm saying it because it's true, it was the most impressive performance I've ever seen in an MMA cage. Uh, he shot 49 takedowns and attempted 401 total strikes across 25 minutes. And the most amazing thing about him shooting 49 takedowns in 25 minutes is that's actually below his average in the UFC. He averaged 9.8 takedowns per five minutes in that fight. He averages 11.2 per five minutes across his UFC run. This guy's impossible to fight. He's impossible to look good against. He basically starts a process where he applies pressure, turns that into a takedown. As you're trying to defend the takedown, he's striking you. And each thing you switch to... He switches to the one thing you can't defend while he's also controlling you. And it's not enough just to defend the takedowns. I don't care how good Tsuda's takedown defense is. He still has to win the fight while actively defending Mm -hmm. these takedowns. Marab just seems like an impossible guy to fight unless you can either, one, hurt him, or two, get on top of him. We saw Marlon Marias hurt him. Marias had faster hands. Marias is like the best fighter in the world for for five minutes against anybody. Uh, Marlon Marias is an incredibly talented fighter, just has no cardio, no durability. He hurt Marab bad. And Marab also got submitted by Ricky Simon earlier in his career. So there are ways to finish Marab. He just seems like a brick shithouse and like he's actually impossible uh, to finish at times. And I don't really see Henry hurting him. I think Cejudo's best chance here is to go for offensive takedowns early and try to get on top of Marab and not give Marab the space to implement his game plan and implement that pressure and implement all those strikes. So if Henry offensively wrestles here, gets on top, I think he has a chance. Otherwise, I think he's going to get absolutely destroyed. Uh, and I think he will be retiring and laying down his gloves at the end of the fight. So Marab, to me, uh, I would lay the juice here up to about minus 225. I also think he's wow. a pretty safe parlay piece. And then also, even if Suhuda wins that first round, I'd love to bet Marab live after round one. I think he's a phenomenal live bet if that price moves in at all. I think if he's still minus 400 after round one, he's probably a pretty safe live bet to lay it even to that point, too, assuming he wins that first round. So, Marab pre-fight, uh, I think parlay piece laid the juice up to minus 240, considering that knockout prop or his inside the distance props, and then a live bet as well. A brick shithouse. That's, yeah. um, that's the title of the podcast this his week. His striking got so much better in his last fight, and I yeah. think that's, you know, I think people are really overlooking that. They just see him as this sort of one-dimensional, like, control grappler who's really muscular, 
But he's implementing that into his boxing. And I do think initiating all these takedowns, getting Henry's hands low, I I think he's going to catch him at some point. So Marab is getting better. He's going to be champion. He's going to beat Sean O'Malley or Cheeto Vera. Inevitable, in my opinion. I think the UFC has been holding him back from superstardom because his style is not as exciting. But yeah, I think he's been the best 135er on the planet for a little bit. We record on a Friday morning. So uh, right now, looking at BetMGM, you can get minus 210 right now on, on the price for uh, Marab. So there you go. Uh, if you are listening on this Friday, Billy, uh, similar sentiments to Zerillo or uh, would you care to counter? No, I, I'm on the same side of this couple things. I want, well, one thing I wanted to correct, you, you know, Sean mentioned he got submitted by Ricky Simone. He didn't really, the record says he got submitted. The fight ended with Simone on a guillotine. Marab like popped right up all excited, put his silly hat on all that stuff. And then the doctors told him to sit back down and then after the doctors informed him that he had been unconscious for that and somehow gave the fight to Simone, despite Dvalishvili being up on the scorecard. So it was a really weird, like, I don't understand how you tell a guy after the fact that, no, you were actually asleep there, despite us seeing you dancing around with your silly hat and Ray Longo and all that. So, yeah, that one I didn't get at all. I, I will say I'm not quite as enthusiastic about the Rob side as Sean, but, you know, trains at Sierra Longo. Sean's a Long Island guy. I think there's a little uh, hometown element to that but but i can't really disagree with anything he said either like you know he's a little muscular dude usually you you don't see that kind of output and cardio on guys that built that way it kind of doesn't make sense by everything i know about every other fighter i've watched in my life but he somehow does it just the insane output and you know i did the breakdown of this one and i mentioned in there the one thing that really swung me is even when he can't get takedowns he didn't take down jose aldo at all he still won that fight cleanly, and it's because of what Sean mentioned. He, every break, he's a little bit quicker to punch. He's a little bit quicker to switch between wrestling and striking. So he has ways other than just the takedowns. I think he probably does get Cejudo down a few times. I think Cejudo probably gets back up without too much incident along the way. But in the process of getting back up, he's going to get hit. In the process of separating on the sprawl, Cejudo's going to get hit. In the process of stepping in and closing that distance, Cejudo's going to get hit. So even without the takedown, I think Marab finishes this. Best I saw, I mean, we saw better odds a little bit earlier in the week, but yeah, 205, 210, totally fine with it. Also like the knockout prop just because Sudo's 37, has had one fight in the last four years, got taken down more times in that fight than the rest of his career combined. You know, I could certainly see like a ground and pound finish, especially deeper in this one if Sudo just doesn't have it anymore. But my main bet is just laying the money line. And I, I agree, Marab is inevitable. All right, so in the... Main event, you guys like the dog, the slight dog, and we're going with the favorite here, uh, Marab here, for the uh, fight of the night. This podcast is proudly presented by BetMGM. Use bonus code ACTION when signing up to get up to $158 in bonus bets when you bet $5. For new users in Arizona, Colorado, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Terms and conditions apply. Must be 21 or older. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. What's this week look like for underdogs? UFC 298 uh, in Anaheim, Zarilla. What do you think of the week for dogs? And who might, uh, who might jump out to you? Yeah, pretty strong opinions on the main card. The prelims are a lot like last week. A number of fights with uh, limited data, limited UFC samples for a lot of the fighters. So most of my action will be geared towards this main card. Uh, <laughs> but the final preliminary fight, Mackenzie Dern against Amanda Lemos. Big sample of both fighters. Two fighters I typically bet against, and I don't think I've actually bet on either during their UFC run. So 
bit of new territory for me, placing a bet on either one of these women. But I do think we're getting a pretty good price here on Mackenzie Dern, given how this fight should play out. Um, Dern was a minus 200 favorite in her last matchup against Jessica Andrade. And there's a lot of similarities between Andrade and Lemos, except I think there's actually qualities about Lemos that are much more favorable to Dern that an Andrade fight was. And I bet on Andrade in that fight. So I was very happy with the matchup for Andrade against Dern. Pretty happy with this matchup for Dern against Lemos. Uh, First and foremost, just the movement. Andrade very active moving around the cage. Uh, Very quick, faster hands. Lemos more of a one strike at a time fighter. And she stands very square and flat footed in the cage. Dern is going to be the one moving around much more active, much more mobile. Also, you know, in Dern's life, she was dealing with a divorce, had separated from her striking coach, a number of things going to that last fight with Andrade back with her striking coach, Jason Perillo now, and also actively talking in interviews. Normally I don't care what fighters have to say in interviews. I think this is important because Dern keeps talking about how she needs to go back to a Khabib-like game plan. Now, she is nothing like Khabib in terms of her strength or physicality. She has a 14% career takedown accuracy. She's not very good at getting opponents to the ground, but she is good at forcing the grappling and forcing the issue when she wants to, when she's not afraid of her opponents. And I think that's what we're going to see for her from her on Saturday. So I expect her to be very active in pursuit of the takedown. She typically averages about three attempts per, te- per round throughout her career. She didn't really go for anything against Andrade. She was just trying to strike that out. Um, so Dern, much more grappling upside. Lemos, the better striker. I think the finishing upside is fairly comparable. Dern, pretty durable. Even the referee had to step in in that fight against Andrade. It's not like she was just knocked out cold. So in terms of the finishing upside, pretty similar to me, but Dern has more upside to winning the third round on volume because Lemos is bad cardio and Dern is going to force high pace. And also Dern is more upside towards winning a 10-8 round with grappling control. Uh, Lemos has been controlled for a substantial amount of time throughout her UFC career. Her title fight loss to Wiley Zhang, she spent 65% of the fight in control positions, 16 in the 25 minutes. So there's certainly a potential that Dern, especially in the third round against the tired limo, she gains position and just holds it, you know, holds the back for the entire round and gets a 10-8, threatens a choke. Um, so just more ways towards winning a dominant decision or potentially getting a draw on that plus money side of the equation. And I think Dern also a worthy live bet after the first round, too, given that cardio discrepancy. As I said, I expect her to force a bit higher of a pace, and that should eventually tire Lemos out, even if Dern isn't having success landing the takedowns. As long as she's pressuring, continually looking for things, moving around the octagon and forcing Lemos to chase her, should be able to tire her out. So uh, Mackenzie Dern, plus 116, like that down to about plus 110 pre-fight. Okay, and another situation where you, you might want to jump in on a live bet and... Yep. Um, Okay. But again, it's one of those things where you want to, the numbers got to be right, but you also got to watch carefully with the cardio and all the other aspects, right? Um, yeah. Always want to make yeah, sure. I mean, if she, and also the price, like if she's minus 400 yeah. after round one, you know, I'm not, not inclined, but if it's, if it's a toss up round, you know, and her price doesn't really move. Yeah. I'm probably still interested at plus 115 after round one, even if, even if it's like 60, 40 that Lemos won the round, I, I do expect her to rally and I expect her to get her grappling going at some point. So uh, the last thing I should mention, women's strawweight fights. This is the smallest division in the UFC. These fights typically go to a decision around two-thirds of the time. The line here indicates the opposite, that this fight is likely to end via finish about two-thirds of the time. So, as I said, it's very binary. I think either Dern uh, submission or Lemos knockout, probably. But i just give Dern more decision equity if it extends. 
Okay. Billy, where are you looking this week? UFC 298 underdog that might jump out to you. Yeah, real quick before I get to mine, Sean was being nice about it, but Amanda Lemos is just like store brand Jessica Andrade, you know? Mm. Like, it's the the meme of I want to go get some Jessica Andrade. We have Jessica Andrade at home. That's that's Amanda <laughs> Lemos. So I kind of like that. Take one on B, too. Standing, uh, right. standing choke. I mean, it was that was a pretty impressive as well. So <laughs> It was both impressive and, like, how has no one taught you to not let that happen to you, Amanda Lemos? You're a professional <laughs> fighter, so like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, and I like Amanda Lemos. Do you not like store brand watch, things, but... Billy? What was that? Do Do you not like store brand things? Are you shaming people who shop? <laughs> no, store I, brand? I have no problem with that. I'm just no. saying, you know, if we're looking for the premium Jessica Andrade, you're not going to find it in Amanda Lemos. <laughs> but uh, anyway, to uh, keep this on the rails a little bit here, look at a Roman Hoppy lock. People might watch and tune into the podcast and be store brand people. So. <laughs> I apologize to those people. I should have yeah, opened with the meme you. joke and I, left that one you. out. Good job. But, uh, yeah, Roman Kapilov fighting Anthony Hernandez. Kind of just surprised that we saw the line this wide. You know, both guys are on four-fight win streaks. They both kind of had rough starts to their UFC career where they dropped, you know, the first two or two out of three, something like that. And then got it together and have been really impressive. Kapilov has finished all four of those fights all by knockout. Hernandez has finished three out of the four, all all of his finishes on the ground, either submission or ground and pound. But I still don't see why it's such a wide line. The one guy that uh, Hernandez didn't finish, Josh Fremd, Kapilov made look real bad on the feet, knocked him out. Kind of a striker versus grappler situation here, but we've got the bigger cage, the bigger pay-per-view cage. Kapilov's a little bit smaller for the division, but I think that helps his cardio. And just lethal hands, lethal striking. I think he can probably catch Hernandez coming in. So, but I also like on top of the just the money line inside the distance at plus three thirty. I think he kind of has to finish Hernandez here. Hernandez is just like relentlessly coming forward. You're gonna keep working for stuff, keep working for stuff. Surprisingly good cardio for a bigger guy who attempts a lot of takedowns. Fairly durable, but he hasn't fought a guy with the striking ability of Kapilov. So, if you're gonna play it, I was looking at knockout. The line is just so ridiculously close between knockout and inside the distance that I'll take the plus three thirty or so inside the distance, about half a unit on Kapilov, and then. You know, to ride what Sean's been saying all podcast, if we get through two rounds and Kapilov has looked good for one or two and we get a big price at Hernandez, come back on the heads the other way. Yeah, I think this is a phenomenal live bet for Hernandez. Um, and I actually like him pre-fight, too. We're on the other side. We're on opposite sides of this one. If Kapilov doesn't hurt him to the body quickly, I think he's going to get drowned. And it's a very – it's not the same dynamic as Marab. But Hernandez is kind of like a middleweight version of Marab or like a middleweight version of Cain Velasquez. Once he starts the process of the takedowns, you're kind of already screwed. And Kapilov, as he gets up, tends to give the back. That's not going to work. So it's it's the kind of thing where, yes, they're going to be at range. Yes, Kapilov has the advantage of distance. But the moment Hernandez is on him, he's going to be stuck to him. Mm-hmm. So I think Kapilov is going to have very few opportunities to strike from range. The one thing that's very much worth noting in this fight, and I think the way it goes bad for Hernandez, is he's been knocked out to the liver before. He He's not, like, nearly as muscular of a guy as Marab. Um, he's, he's, like, a bit bit thinner of a grappler. He tends to be strong, but he's, he doesn't have this, like, muscular physique. And Kapilov has a really nasty body kick and really good boxing where he works the body. So... Maybe as Hernandez is initiating a clinch exchange, you know, Kapilov can hit him with some short shots to the body and hurt him, maybe get some separation. But as I said, once Hernandez sort of initiates the process of the grappling here, I think he's going to drown Kapilov. I like Hernandez, the one in round two or round three. Not the best odds on those. Typically you see like 
five to one, ten to one at worst on round two and round three. For Hernandez, it's like plus four fifty and plus six fifty, plus seven fifty. The books sort of know what's up with this fight. I think they also expect Hernandez to finish the fight in the second or third round if he does do it. I also don't mind his submission prop as well. Uh, plus two hundred out there. Projected that at plus one seventy. But as Billy mentioned, Hernandez can finish you in multiple ways on the ground. You know, he could get the ground around TKO or hunt for the submission. So, uh, yeah, to me, Hernandez pre-fight, I parlayed him with Marab. I projected his money line closer to minus 270. If you're going to bet Kapolov, I would bet his inside the distance prop, or I'd probably bet his round one props. I think that's his likelier win condition. Once Hernandez starts grappling him, he's going to gas out. Um, he's, he's gassed out from grappling in the past. He has good takedown defense historically in the UFC. I believe it's above 90%, but... He hasn't faced a guy who's going to wrestle like Hernandez is. So this is this is a fun fight. Good first fight on the main card. And to a degree, a similar dynamic is Marab and Zahudo. But I think Kapilov, as Billy mentioned, why he's betting a much higher finishing upside than Zahudo does against Marab. And just, you know, a much sharper striker than yeah, Zahudo, oh, I think. 100%. Zahudo versus Davalos, really, it's kind of like, yeah, he might win the striking, probably not the wrestling. Mm-hmm. This one is like, one guy is almost certainly going to win the striking, one yeah, almost they, certainly going to win. they're striking for 15 minutes, Kapilov's the clear side, 100%. Where if Marab and Zahudo strike for 15 minutes, I'm still not sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's a clear advantage for Kapilov. I just... I don't know how much time he's going to get to strike. But, yeah, I think it's inside the distance props, if you like him, are certainly the way to go. Only other thing I wanted to mention on that, this is the first southpaw that Hernandez will have fought in the mm. UFC, which I think is a slight I, – I don't know how much to put in that. We don't know you know how many lefties these guys are training with, but Kapilov fights righties all the time. For Hernandez, it's the first time. And Kapilov is, like, super left-handed, if that makes sense to people who have done any kind of striking arts. He's always circling to the right. He's always throwing calf kicks with his lead leg and then power kicks with his back leg. leg. He's, he's just as left-handed as you can be, and I'm not doing a great job describing that. But but final note on that, somebody once told me that in any Anthony Hernandez fight, the smart bet is the underdog, and that person was Sean Zerillo, like three Anthony Hernandez mm-hmm. fights ago, before we realized that Hernandez was a lot better than he looked in his in his yeah. opening few <laughs> UFC appearances. Yeah, there's the, there's some Hernandez fights where, you know, in hindsight, I probably would not have bet against them. Uh, you know, now that I've seen more of his skill set, seen him play yeah. out in different fights, he uh, he lost to Marcus Perez. I mean, that's that's wild. I think I bet Kevin Holland against him, and Kevin Holland finished him with a body shot in the first round. So, uh, you know, Hernandez, like, he's vulnerable. There's there's durability concerns, but if, if you allow him to implement his game plan – He's going to tire you out to the point where he's going to make you ineffective anyway. So uh, very interesting fighter because, uh, as I said, it's like the Marab game plan with less durability, and that tends to lead to some funny outcomes. I'm a fan of the disagreement. You guys rarely disagree, and there's healthy back and forth. And I can tell with more data from previous fights, you guys have more takes. That's what I've gathered as well. And Zarello, yeah. you did say that last week when we did the episode. You were like, well, you know, it's still a feeling out process. Got to see what these guys look like. And uh, it's a good card this week. Let's yeah, I've, been, you know, I've, I've really been thinking about these fights since last Sunday. Normally, normally I'm like getting into the fights like Wednesday, you know, especially for these fight night cards. It's, it's tough to get into them as much just because you're not as familiar with the fighters. There's a lot of work you have to do before you can even place bets. But these fights, I, I have a lot of data, a lot of notes on all of them. I uh, don't need to go back and do as much research since I'm confident with my reads on a lot of them. But uh, yeah, it's, it's like bets I've been looking at since literally Sunday and I've been planning this card out. So it's, it's been a fun one to think about. And I'm, I'm really excited for this card. The UFC has put out a lot of crap cards lately. This is a pretty good one. Another take. There it is. Uh, all right. Let's work nah, I don't through. I think that's qual- a hot take at all. 
it's a take. It's adding to the plate of takes. I like it. Uh, let's do props quickly, and then we'll do best bets because we uh, we went a little long there in the previous uh, discussion. So go ahead, Zerillo. Yeah, Jeff Neal, Ian Gary, uh, another fight people are really looking forward to. I put in my write-up that Jeff Neal is a popular underdog bet this week because he has the power to chin his opponents, and everybody wants to see Ian Gary get chinned. I mean, this guy has become – he's fighting on the same card as Henry Cejudo, and he's somehow more cringeworthy. It's very impressive. So I do think Gary is going to win a boring decision here. I think people are going to be frustrated. I think Neil has the power to knock him out. I don't know if he has the ability to get inside of Gary's range and close the show. Uh, Gary's last knockout came in the apex against Vicente Luque. He tends to have a bit more difficulty chasing opponents who are mobile than he does brawling with opponents who are going to stand in front of him. You could beat a guy like Santiago Ponzinibbio, who's going to fight in a phone booth with you. Not as much success against a guy like Wonderboy Thompson, who's going to move laterally around the cage and frustrate you and kick you a bunch. That is more so what Ian Gary is going to do here. Uh, Gary also has the grappling upside in this fight, I'd say, as well. I doubt he hits takedowns. But of the two, if one is going to hit a takedown and land on top, it's likelier to be Ian Gary. I just expect a 15-minute striking fight. Gary probably edging ahead on volume, mostly with the kicks. Neil potentially landing the harder punches. Maybe he lands a high kick as well. Don't necessarily see that against the taller fighter. But, the, you know, the one concern with Gary's profile is the durability. He's undefeated. We've seen him wobble badly by Song Kanong. Seen him wobble at other fights. I think he's more well-rounded than people give him credit for. You go back to his Cage Warriors career, he's mostly beating people with grappling. I think his striking has gotten so much better. And, you know, you look at the reach discrepancy. Neil actually has a reach advantage. It's not true in this fight. Gary has much longer legs and is going to be kicking him from across the octagon. So it's up to Neil to close the distance, create pocket exchanges, and potentially knock him out. I think Gary is going to be running away from him for most of the fight. So fight to go to a decision and even money. Like that too, about minus 110. And then I just want to briefly touch on the co-main event, Robert Whitaker and Paulo Costa. Tough one to read. Really tough one to read. Costa has one win in the past four years. Um, this is the post-USADA era of the UFC, though. And if I had to pinpoint a fighter who's most likely to juice up, follow Costa. So don't really know what to expect here from Costa, a year and a half removed from his last octagon appearance. He didn't look good in that fight versus Luke Rockhold. That card, though, also took place in Salt Lake City. We'll talk about another Salt Lake City fighter in a minute, but uh, everybody on those Salt Lake City cards have looked terrible. So don't really know how to measure Paulo Costa's level. I do know that Robert Whitaker's athleticism is declining. His durability is declining. After that recent performance against Strigas Duplessis, he did not look nearly as good as he used to. I actually thought he looked a little lackluster in his performance over uh, Marvin Vittori. So I'm kind of leaning Costa KO. But if you're going to bet the Whitaker side, I'd take him by decision. Costa very durable. I'd expect them to go the full 15 minutes uh, if Whitaker's going to win it. So uh, Komain worth thinking about a bit more. May end up passing on the fight, but definitely an intriguing matchup. And uh, curious to see how Paulo Costa looks physically in the cage. Okay, Billy, how about yourself? Prop that jumps out when you look at the board. Yeah, he didn't know he was doing it, but Sean teed me up wonderfully with uh, mentioning the secret juice and the uh, steroid issue. Because I am taking Danny Barlow by knockout at plus 160. He's fighting Josh Quinlan. So Josh Quinlan gets on the contender series, knocks the guy out. It's overturned because Josh Quinlan gets tested for steroids. They let him in the UFC anyway. Who cares? I guess. Whatever. <laughs> His first fight in the UFC, he tests positive, but like not enough to get suspended. And all they do is move the fight back a week, which, like, you you know he tested positive. He just tested positive last week. And they're like, yeah, but it'll be fine in a week. It'll be out of his system. So that was weird. Who came up with another knock? Yeah, doing that, right? 
yeah, whatever. It's, it's a week later. He's fine. So gets another knockout mm-hmm. in that fight against Jason Witt, who like isn't UFC level. Then his next fight loses a bad decision, doesn't test positive for anything, which seems correlated at the very least. That you know, the one time he doesn't have anything in his system, he loses. And now he's fighting Danny Barlow. Another guy came in off the Contender Series. Danny Barlow's nickname, and this is all one word, is Left Hand to God. With the two, with number the, two. With the number two, yeah, right, yeah. And all he does is knock people out. Huge knockout in the Contender Series is a slight underdog. Uh, the nickname kind of says it all. He's just out there swinging them things. And if he's going to win, that's how he's going to do it. So basically you're getting a guy who's a moderate favorite about minus 200 you're getting him at plus 160 if you play his knockout odds pretty simple play for me there also a seven inch reach advantage huge striker i really like danny barlow uh it's tough to get a read on contender series guys a lot of time he just moves kind of cool like he's very patient he faints mm-hmm. a lot he's a southpaw and he's really long so you could sort of see him like as he's marching opponents down like fainting and breaking them down and then when he lets the stuff go, he can hit you from so far away. So, yeah, Danny Barlow, fun fighter, one to keep an eye on. Also worth a live bet after round one. We've consistently seen Josh Quinlan fade after the first round. Quinlan may even have grappling success in the first round, but I think Barlow is going to rally. So, uh, yeah, if you get a better price on Barlow live, certainly take that too. All right. And with all that, do we have best bets? Because it sounds like you have a lot of them. And more more like best best takes. Zarello. Yeah, I guess guess it's it's more of a take compared to, you know, our action at work staff this week. I feel like I'm the only one on Marco Sergio de Lima against Justin Taffa. I feel like the entire world is on Justin Taffa here. The way I handicap the fights, the way I build out the data for the projections, Justin Taffa, Roman Kapalov, the two most popular underdog selections this week. Public picking them at north of 60% in fights where they're underdogs. So based on the way I handicap, the way I create projections, Kapalov, Taffa, extremely public underdogs this week. Um, Justin Taffa has eight fights in the UFC. He's had two two takedown attempts against him. This guy's a white belt on the ground. I think there's a chance Justin Taffa is the worst grappler in the UFC, period. I think there's a chance he's the worst grappler in the UFC since, like, the initial days of the UFC, since UFC <laughs> won. Uh, the only two guys who tried to even attempt a takedown against him, Carlos Felipe, who beat him by decision, Controversial decision. And then uh, Harry Hunsucker, who was already concussed and had no business even being in the UFC to begin with. Tafa's wins have come over bottom of the barrel UFC competition. All guys who have been cut. Marco Sagerio de Lima has more fights in the UFC than Justin Tafa has career fights. Now, I talked about the age differential earlier with Volk and Deporia, eight years. That exists in this fight as well. It's much less concerning in the heavier weight classes than that is in the lighter weight classes. Uh, power matters much more than speed in the heavier weight classes. But I think particularly here, as long as the Lima, who's well-trained, fights an American top team, he will stick to a game plan. As long as he doesn't get knocked down on the feet in the first, like, 10 seconds, he's going to shoot a takedown, he's going to get Tafa down, and he's going to make him look like an absolute fool on the mat. So Marco Sergio de Lima, minus 140. I really like his submission prop at plus 600 as well. If he lands takedowns here, he's going to need one to finish it. I don't think Justin Taffa has anything on the ground. The one thing I'd be concerned about is De Lima has very good leg kicks, and he likes to strike a little bit too much sometimes. So if he's trading leg kicks with another guy who could absolutely bomb the legs too and who also has much better hands, I don't think it's necessarily going to go well for him. But he does have upside here. 
to me, not only to win the fight with one takedown, but to potentially control the fight with takedowns in each round and win a very clear decision. So uh, Marco Sergio de Lima, minus 140. A bit concerned about the cardio and durability, but the, the grappling upside, I mean, if he if he grapples, I literally think he's going to look minus 900. So uh, Sergio de Lima, up to about minus 160 pre-fight, I think is a fine breath. All right, Billy, take us home. This is a luck ratings uh, write-up by you. And I'm, the question now, of course, is the numbers moved, right, on Maverick now to uh, minus 200. So give us your take on that. Yeah, you know, I said it earlier in the week, and our editor, Dan Stubb, actually pointed this out to me. He messaged me, like, Monday morning, what am I missing in Miranda Maverick, mm-hmm. Andrea Lee. I will say, you know, BetMGM has done the best job adjusting that line. If you hunt through the market, you can get still minus 185 or so. Hunt. Yeah, I just don't understand why she's not a heavier favorite here. We got the age gap. She is nine years younger than Andrea mm-hmm. Lee. This is at 125, so a division where that definitely matters. Andrea Lee has lost three fights in a row. You know, decent competition, but she's lost three fights in a row and she's 35. Miranda Maverick's only losses are to all, like, top five fighters in various mm-hmm. weight classes and Jasmine Vicious, Aaron Blanchfield, and Macy Barber. Never been finished in any of those. Great grappler, can do some, you know, submissions of her own. Andrea Lee, not really a finisher. Well, I, sh- I guess I shouldn't say that. She has a couple. But, you know, not extremely dangerous on that. I just don't understand it. It feels like Maverick should be like minus three, minus 350 here. So nothing crazy. I wouldn't call it my best bet. It's kind of just the last one. But she should win this one pretty easily. I think she's going to look like a much heavier favorite by the time the cage door closes. Yeah, I think Maverick, I mean, Maverick's 26. And I think she's underrated because of the quality of those two losses to Blanchfield yeah. and Barber. Like, and it was a split to Macy Barber. Like, and and you know, Blanchfield and Barber will destroy Andrea Lee, like, without question. So uh, I think the Jasmine Jasmine Vicious loss may be, like, the concern because that's a lower level of fighter. But Jasmine can land takedowns and stay on top of you. Andrea Lee does not have top control. So of these two, I think Maverick is much likelier to hold top position for, like, extended stretches and not get a 10-8 round because I don't think either of them are going to do enough to get a 10-8, but likelier to secure, you know, cleaner rounds where Lee's probably, her upside is a close decision win, split decision win. So, yeah, I, I kind of agree. I think Maverick, a fairly clear side, probably should be a bigger favorite. Okay, I think that's it. That was a, a longer episode, but uh, really good Thank stuff you. from both of you. That was a good breakdown. It's one of those episodes where I'm left thinking I, I can't add much here um, because it's very succinct. And the fact Zerillo's been waiting to get some of this off his chest in Sunday um, is, is very rewarding to the audience, I think. They should be very lucky. Um, you can find Zerillo and Billy Ward in the Action Network app. Should they add, they had a couple of live bet angles. If indeed they get there, they might add those during uh, the fights on Saturday. So be sure to... Follow them both and download the free award-winning Action Network app. That is your UFC 298 betting preview here on the Action Network podcast presented by BetMGM. For Billy and Sean, Brendan Glasheen, thanks for listening and best of luck. Action Network reminds you, please gamble responsibly. If you or someone you care about has a gambling problem, help is available 24-7 at 1-800-GAMBLER.